This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and Asia Pacific editor Damon Evans. And this has been a week in which we've had just so many news items breaking at really inconvenient times of day. <laughs> I want to hear the world's smallest violin for the energy journalists out there. Ready to finish your shift? Bang, here's an energy strategy. You're about to finish up for the day? How about a $1.5 billion North Sea deal? Yeah, thanks, guys. And thank you specifically to the press office at Bayes, who have been um, just so helpful with uh, getting us this, this, the news we need at, at, at the right times of day. But anyway, anyway, um, let's, uh, let's touch on one of those uh, to kick off. Uh, late on Thursday night, uh, relatively late on Thursday, we had news that Ithaca Energy is continuing its run of acquisitions buying up Sickerpoint Energy, the operator of the ever-controversial Campbell project in an overall deal worth just shy of $1.5 billion. So we've talked about Campbell in this podcast before, uh, not, not enough clearly, um, but just to recap for anyone who somehow isn't aware, this is one of the largest untapped kind of fields in the UK, in UK waters west of Shetland. Hit a low point in December, right after COP26, when partner Shell said it wouldn't press ahead to an investment decision. Fast forward a few short months and we've had licenses extended for Cambo, a new UK energy strategy for the North, which is very supportive of UK and North Sea oil and gas. We have much higher commodity prices. And Sicker Point have obviously got private equity owners who have been trying to sell for some time. So conditions, it would seem, are ripe for Ithaca Energy to swoop in. Um, that said, and as much as this deal would seem to make sense, uh, Ithaca have high production but low reserves, and it's pretty much the uh, mirror opposite for Sicker, um, it does make sense. I can't say that I saw this deal uh, coming. Uh, I spoke to the chairman of Ithaca this morning who told me that uh, this has been a takeover target for them for two years or so. They've been looking at them, so it's been going on for some time by, uh, behind the scenes. So Ithaca... Ithaca is a, a sizable operator in the North Sea, uh, not west of Shetland, more central North Sea. They're owned by Israel's uh, Delic Group. Uh, and as I said, they've been on a bit of a run of deals recently, uh, notably acquiring Chevron's UK business in 2019. Uh, they've recently done deals for uh, Marubeni and, and Summit Exploration and Productions um, businesses in the North Sea too. And acquiring Sicker Point, um, they gain access not only to operatorship of Campbell, they're also taking a 20% uh, non-operated stake in Rosebank, another one of the largest untapped fields in UK waters, both of which uh, they said are expected to reach FID this year, interestingly. Uh, and the lie west of Shetland, they're pretty much, um, is despised, too strong a word, um, very strongly opposed by climate groups. So it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. I mean, Ithaca had... Uh, Abigail, a, a very a tiny field, frankly, uh, approved. Uh, I think at the start of this year, and it is it is it is genuinely tiny, just a couple of hundred, a couple of million barrels, really, um, and that's got a lot of interest from climate protesters. So, how how is Cambo and Rosebank going to fare out? Uh, I'd be interested to see, but. They're also gaining stakes in some of the UK's other top producers, uh, BP Shahalian, Equinor's uh, Mariner Field. And uh, the, the marriage of these two companies, if you like, it does make sense. Uh, and I think as far as Cambo goes, its future, despite 
what we've seen in the past month, its future has really not looked any brighter than, than it has now, I would say. And and Ithaca also heading for an IPO? Did I did I see that right? You did, you did. Um yeah, that that's been that's been mooted for some time. Um by uh, Delic, um, and I think we, we had the chief financial officer tell us that. Um, uh, I think back in June of last year as well. Uh, I did actually ask the chairman about that this morning, um, and they said that you know uh, he had he did note that a number of other companies um, in the North Sea of, of similar size obviously had uh, Chrysler Premier uh, do an IPO last year, um, uh, and now Harbor Energy. Um, so it, it it seems it's very much on the cards. It, it doesn't sound like it was it was it was a bit. Uh, don't want to sound harsh, but maybe coy might be the right word. Uh, didn't want to give too much away, um, but uh, it does. It seems that it's very clear that is on the cards for them. I think they're trying to work it up and get the right, uh, the timing right. I don't know what the right timing might look like. It's certainly um, good commodity prices at the moment, but uh, it wasn't giving away too much. Um, but uh, it would seem that they have built up a decent kind of run of uh, of acquisitions. They're building up a very nice portfolio. And it sounded like they would be up for uh, more deals going forward too. So, uh, and, and notably, there's a big Sinoc uh, portfolio reportedly uh, going out to be to be snapped up. Though uh, we don't know who might who might take that. So, yeah, as I say, uh, Chevron Summit, Marabeni, Sicker Point, quite the run of deals. Um, you know, a week ago I sent to print a story about operators not rushing into deals due to the high commodity prices. Uh, and since then, Ithaca, I think, have done two deals uh, announced. So uh, thanks, guys. Uh, shows what I know. But uh, yeah, as I say, should be a good fit for Cambo. It's an operator that's got the resources to get it through to production. Look, looking forward to see how it goes. And as I say, it's it's a good time with a supportive uh, new UK government energy strategy. So um, yeah, future should look pretty bright for them. So I mean, I suppose it was very interesting timing coming uh, as about sort of 24 hours after the, uh, the the energy strategy. I mean, it, it, it seems unlikely that it, that uh, the, the the energy strategy would have would have triggered the deal, but it does seem like uh, like really positive news for the North Sea from that uh, that that government plan. It does, yeah. I think. Um, as as you say, Ed, we've well as you can reference, we have had some tough years uh, since 2014, really. Um, and as soon as things started to look good, we had uh, we had COVID again, and then around COP26, a lot of political uncertainty. So to see uh, a strategy that um, at its heart puts support of of North Sea oil and gas, um, and obviously we're we're talking about a new licensing round in the autumn um, with the new climate checkpoints. So. Politically, um, it's a bit of a, a shot in the arm for the North Sea, I would say, in terms of um, knowing that this is going to be an investable um, long-term regime um, that they can, you know, put cash in without fear of uh, massive political change. Um, plenty in it. Otherwise, um, a ramp up in, in nuclear in the UK, increasing the UK's 2030 wind target from 40 gigawatts to 50 gigawatts, doubling hydrogen production to 10 gigawatts, still relatively small, but uh, it's not nothing. Um, and, you know, I, I did note with some amusement, um, obviously I've kind of referenced the fact that the, there's a bit of an omni-shambles in terms of getting this press release out and under embargo, and then we didn't actually get the policy document for, for another 12 hours or so. But I noted with amusement um, on, on when, was it Wednesday or Tuesday? I think it might have been Wednesday night, uh, the press release went out. And a number of oil companies were on there um, 
and not 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 you know very notably Ben Van Buren of Shell quoted, and it just it just reminded me just a few months ago we had um, him quoted as lamenting Shell and other oil and gas firms having not been welcome at COP twenty six, uh, and now you know uh, he's among the top billing on a on a government energy strategy. Um, so things seem to have changed very drastically in the space of that few short months. Um, and, and I guess in, in terms of, of uh, to your question, I mean, in terms of the North Sea welcoming it, I mean, we had John Underhill, who heads up Aberdeen University's Energy Transition Institute, and he kind of said this is arguably the first time in decades that there's been this deep appreciation where and, and from whom we get our energy, the, the role the oil and gas plays within that, how we can move towards a low-carbon future compatible with reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So I think the fact he's suggesting this could be the first time in decades we've had that shows the lack of recognition we've we've had in, in terms of the, the role of oil and gas in recent years. So as I say, good to see um, the, the support there. Hopefully that means we can have uh, some this gradual transition uh, into an integrated energy system, which is what the, the North Sea is ultimately going for. Hopefully that means this can now press ahead without um, fear of, of massive uh, political and regulatory shift. Um, but uh, but we'll see. I mean, one of the things that that, that had that there was a lot of criticism on, this is a kind of a, a strategy for the next kind of three, four, five years, maybe the next 10 years. It doesn't seem to have much, if anything at all, new on energy efficiency, which we've talked about before. So it's it, from what I gather, this isn't going to go far in terms of helping people in the immediate term who are going to be struggling to pay their bills with the price cap having gone up from April 1st. It's going to be an average of £700 increased energy bills for the average household. So that is that is going to be a, a continued um, point of criticism for the government, certainly as we head from summer into into winter, I think. But um, so so it is tough out there for now, um, but good for the North Sea. Um, so we'll see how that progresses. Uh, and next up, we'll move on to the next phase of our very own Energy Voice Out Loud strategy from European demand to African supply right after this. Energy Voice presents Tracking Transition, CCUS. Carbon capture, utilisation and storage is an essential solution for the world to reach net zero helping to eliminate emissions from industries such as energy, steel, cement and chemicals. Established infrastructure and vast offshore storage capacity gives the UK a strategic advantage. This will be key to the UK's push towards net zero by 2050, and the UK can act as a springboard for CCUS development around Europe. CCUS, the latest in our Tracking Transition series, kicks off on May the 9th, with Session 1 focusing on the UK and Europe. Together with our principal partner, SSE Thermal, we will analyse the UK's expanding CCUS sector and the rich export opportunities it will generate. There will also be a focus on developments in other European countries and the emerging synergies across the industry. Register free for this virtual event at trackingccus.com. Okay, so Ed, uh, well, Europe's asking the supply question and uh, Africa is offering some answers. Indeed, indeed. So, so uh, interesting uh, report out uh, this week from the Africa Finance Corps. Um, the, the sort of big uh, sort of uh, financiers of sort of infrastructure around Africa. They've got a lot of interest in in, in energy, um, and, and and so they're, they're, they're you know they put out this report, sort of looking at the ways in which 
clearly in the context of the sort of the European security supply challenge. I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's a really sort of explicit reference to the invasion of Ukraine and, and, and to the way in which obviously, you know, prices are up. And, 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 you know, clearly Europe is looking for new supply. And I think, you know, we, we, we've seen that already, like a number of, uh, of, of European sort of ministers doing various tours of uh, sort of gas producers. The, 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 the Germans went to the Middle East, uh, the Italians went around various, uh, various interesting hotspots in, in, in Africa. And I think this is sort of the, the, sort of the African response to it in many ways. So, there's there's a kind of a clear sense that that Africa has the the the, the gas that uh, that Europe could need to, uh, to to fill this gap, and I mean I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? You know, talking about the the UK energy strategy, uh, and which, which feels kind of quite long term, uh, but I think in many ways, obviously, the, the kind of the, the challenge really is, you know, absent any sort of radical change in the sort of the Russia Ukraine conflict and how that plays out, uh, the challenge is going to be the the kind of coming winter. Um, which is going to be uh, really difficult. I mean, you know, the UK I don't think has come out with a with a, with a plan for for gas storage by that point. But I think you know the EU has sort of accelerated its aims to sort of top up gas storage to I think ninety percent levels by uh, the beginning of November. Um, obviously, with an idea to kind of getting through those cold winter months when historically, obviously, you know, those uh, the the reliance on, on on Russian pipeline gas would increase. So I think. There is this sense that, you know, obviously there is this potential in Africa, possibly, you know, more medium to long term than short term. But, you know, there there is still spare capacity in Africa. I mean, particularly, you know, Egypt, for instance, has uh, two LNG plants which aren't entirely used. Uh, Algeria's got some capacity. So I think, you know, there, there is this sense of um, the opportunity of gas and the way in which Africa can can kind of help out on that side. But I think I suppose the other sort of side of the, of the, of the argument that uh, the AOC put forward was... Again and again, you know, this kind of criticism of uh, the financial world, you know, who have really, you know, embraced this sort of, you know, move to ESG, to cutting emissions, and as a result have moved away from oil and gas. I mean, obviously, oil, you know, it, it feels harder and harder to sort of make the argument for oil, even though obviously we are still going to need to be, you know, driving cars for at least, you know, the sort of the medium term. But, you know, that sort of argument for gas is, 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 I suppose much harder to make, isn't it? In in a way, uh, to say that we should move away from gas, and, and the, what the AFC has been saying is, look, we need the gas. Europe needs the gas. African consumers need this gas. But the problem is that sort of shortfall on the on on the, on the on the funding side. And there's so there was there's a lot in there about um, you know that sort of African demand, which obviously. You know, in 2021, we saw, I think, for the first time in maybe 10 years, the number of people in Africa living without access to electricity actually increased. So we're actually, you know, going backwards in terms of the Sustainable Development Goals, which aims for universal energy access by 2030. With, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, we're obviously moving in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, the AFC has talked about sort of supporting renewable energy, about solar, about wind, about these kind of low carbon energies, but they see, you know, gas is playing a really important part in 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 
delivering that sort of near-term transition. And I suppose that, you know, when we sort of talk about transition in that African context, it's as much about giving people access to electricity as it is about moving away from from, from high carbon sources. So I thought, you know, look, it's not uh, a new argument, but I think it's really worth saying that there is this, you know, there is this opportunity and there is a sort of a, a high level understanding in Europe. Now it seems that... There is a need for oil and gas in ways that, you know, at COP26, you know, we, we, we didn't see, right? You know, that famously, as you were saying, you know, that kind of sense that the oil industry was unwelcome. The government sense has changed. The financial sense, it, it still feels is, is kind of a bit slow moving. It, you, know, you know, banks are still saying we are not ready to, you know, quite support these, uh, you know, even gas projects, even in a case where you can provide energy access to people without, ac- without electricity and where, you know, it is a, a sort of a lower carbon source. So it's, it's an interesting move coming in, in sort of light of those European developments. It, it's, it's interesting to see uh, the, the, the mention about the European Union trying to climb classify gas as green. And you, and, you, and you mentioned how there's, I suppose, different arguments and different contexts around transition, depending on where you are in the world. Um, so totally recognize it as a transition fuel. Um, I'm quite sure that climate groups will call this uh, greenwashing as it is. It does remain a fossil fuel, of course. But in terms of unlocking that investment, I mean, and as your piece mentions, Ed, you know, the, the, the idea of new infrastructure needed beyond just upstream roads, railways, ports, um, you know, in terms of unlocking the funding to invest um, for for gas, how, imp- how how important will it be to make the argument on the transition and make the argument on, in terms of indeed, I guess, classifying gas as green just to get the financiers behind it to address the problem it's it's a bit of a a, a bit of a quandary it, it, it is indeed indeed uh i mean I, yeah it's 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 really uphill isn't it i mean i think you know we, we we've clearly seen that over the last two years and i guess you know this the fact that there is has been this sort of high level governmental change that the eu has you know started sort of saying oh you know gas you know has a role transitional medium term you know as a kind of a green fuel Maybe that sort of helps uh, add to that pressure. I mean, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. I guess is, is is the only real response, isn't it? I mean, I think you know, look clearly, there's a, there's a sort of a a, a financial banking sort of uh, investment side to it, but there's also a governmental role, right? I think you know, export credit agencies clearly have a, have a really big role to play in terms of delivering. Uh, you, know, you know, the insurance, the sort of sureties to, you know, sort of more commercially minded banking groups to deliver these projects. You know, for instance, UK Export Finance providing, what was it, £800 million or so to the Mozambique LNG project a couple of years ago, uh, uh, which obviously is is facing its own challenges in court from uh, various environmental NGOs. So, but I think looking at those sort of export credit agencies, that's where you could see, you know, governments really start to I suppose you know sort of start to put some pressure on the sort of the commercial side of things isn't it if if you know it would be a, a extraordinary and I, I suspect it's not going to happen in the UK at least if the UK export finance said look we could you know finance we could we could be more open to 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 gas as a transitional fuel to provide access to electricity to allow this gas to flow because Clearly, there's a need for uh, this gas in, in, in Africa for people living in Africa. But there is also a need for less polluting fuels around the world, isn't there? And I mean, I think, you know, you, we're seeing that in uh, in Europe where, 
there's a kind of a you know the 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 only alternative I suppose in the short term to to, to burning gas is burning coal. And I, I mean you know and and I'm sure that Damon would probably sort of see similar things in in his neck of the woods, right? Where gas is an expensive fuel, what is the alternative in the short term? It's going to be coal again, isn't it? Yeah, this is true. And um, what what came to mind when you're talking there was. And if uh, the UK or the European countries can't come up or don't come up with finance to help investment in Africa in the infrastructure, the upstream, where, where would it come from, Ed? Where, where, where could you see it coming from? I mean, in my mind, I was thinking... China ringing through my head as always, but um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I suppose you know, sort of historically, China has has always seemed to be sort of the lender of last resort, hasn't it? And I think there's there is still that sense that uh, you know Chinese uh, backing may 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 be there. I suppose Middle Eastern you know investors also tend to have a bit sort of higher tolerance for higher sort of fossil fuels. So there's a sense, you know, Middle East, maybe Asia. I mean, I suppose you know. Don't know. What are what are your thoughts? Do you think the Japanese would still be uh, able to? I mean, there was there was, there was a deal. Was it last week where there was a, a, a Japanese trading house bought a sort of a, a stake in a, in a in a in a gas distribution company in in Nigeria, which I thought was an interesting move. It didn't seem to be the sort of deal that a, that a European company would probably make, but the fact that a sort of a, a, a Japanese company came in and, and bought this twenty five percent stake was, I thought, actually a really interesting uh, demonstration of intent. Yeah, that's certainly interesting. I mean, I think for the North Asian countries, particularly South Korea and Japan, it's getting harder to to invest in fossil fuels. Um, so, so that that that's yeah, definitely a, a signpost. I think that that deal you just mentioned happened. Um, yeah, I think we could still see the Japanese come in, but it, it, as I said, it's getting harder. We've got um, export credit agencies in South Korea being taken to court by uh, traditional landowners in Australia at the moment over the Santos-led Barossa gas project in Australia, which I think uh, that I think that highlights the risks um, to financing. I mean, that's not a net zero issue, but they're also under pressure from net zero activists in south korea too so so we are they, we are feeling those kind of pressures on this side of the world in, in the more developed economies i think we're going to pick that up um, right after this uh, so thank you very much ed uh, we'll stick with security of supply uh, and right and next we'll have damon talking a bit about some deals being made between china and the u.s Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, Damon, so, uh, well, a a number of LNG deals struck between uh, the US and China over the past couple of weeks. Uh, tell us a bit about what's been going on. Yeah, so well, we've we've heard a lot of rhetoric from the Europeans about 
taking delivery of US LNG and the Americans saying they're going to send loads of US LNG, they're coming to the rescue. There's been very little kind of concrete commercial deals or evidence that this is going to happen. And I think I think we all know you need um, you need you need concrete deals from buyers that they're going to buy the LNG before you can get finance to build terminals. That's the way it works in in the real world. Maybe not in the politicians' world. In 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 Downing Street, for instance, I, I'm, you know, but I'm not privy. I've never mm. been there, but that, that's what I reckon. Um, so on the opposite side, we've got China now. So let's see. They're actually they're not making lots of rhetoric. They're actually taking action, and this week. We saw another Chinese company sign up to buy US LNG for a project that is yet to be developed. And this is the fourth US-China LNG deal struck in the past two weeks. Now, since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February, China-based buyers have lined up a combined 7.7 million tons of US LNG supply for, I I believe most of that is from projects yet to be built. So... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain on the details of that. But I mean, that, that shows you they're actually signing up for deals. The Japanese are also signing up for US LNG deals to allow investment to go ahead and production to be exported at some point in the future. Um, on the other hand, I don't see Europe doing that uh, as yet. We see a lot of talk, but but not a lot going on. Um, so, so that's interesting. And also there's plans for about $350 billion worth of investment in infrastructure, pipelines, terminals, etc. in Asia uh, for gas. Um, but, but, not, but not everyone um, is... Um, sorry about that. But not everybody is um, that enthusiastic about these investment plans. There was one study released recently... Uh, by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And um, the title of that was, Now is Not the Time to Build New LNG Import Terminals in Asia. And and they're talking about price-sensitive liquefied natural gas buyers, um, countries like Vietnam, uh, possibly Thailand, the Philippines, South Asia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, not not the Chinese. The Chinese will buy at any price. I think Japan and South Korea too, they're, they're not price sensitive. But this report was basically, um, the argument was price volatility, which we're seeing a lot of lately, and we're expected to see a lot more of that in the future. Um, so the price volatility in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine crisis is likely to be exacerbated by energy insecurity and stranded asset risks for new LNG buyers. And what they're basically saying is that this price volatility offers unacceptable risks to the emerging Asian buyers and the risks of LNG assets becoming stranded or locking regional governments into uneconomic guarantees that displace local renewable energy is unacceptably high. Um, and a case in point is Vietnam. Vietnam has loads of LNG to power terminals being proposed. They have a, a, a big shortage of electricity in, in Vietnam, and um, LNG is seen as the answer. But but this group, um, this report argues that these assets could you know quite likely be stranded due to the, not being able to afford the actual gas to import. And... Um, yeah, so so a lot of things going on. But I remember, like you know, in the last kind of couple of years, a number of presentations from people like the IEA saying it was exactly those countries that were going to be the future of LNG demand. Um, so I mean, this feels like a real reversal, doesn't it? 
Um, uh, but I suppose it's that problem about sort of uh, it, it's that problem of maybe sort of spot contracts versus long term, isn't it? I think you know China can clearly see the strategic uh, need for, for for long-term contracts and I, I suppose my fit I don't know I don't know about sort of you know places like Vietnam but I, I you know I mean you know so Ghana for instance also built an FSRU in the last kind of couple of years also you know with with, with an idea about sort of securing uh, LNG imports and I think you know they were kind of banking on this idea of sort of cheap spot deliveries which obviously now just feels uh, incredibly fanciful and I you know I suppose in, in many ways it, it seems like a very similar question will that will that FSRU ever be used? So I mean, is it a problem of? I mean, do do you think that that Vietnam would ever get to a point where it would sort of so, strike those kind of long term deals? I mean, I suppose if it, if it's LNG to power, maybe they are looking for sort of more strategic, sort of concrete supplies. But I think I think the problem with Vietnam is is its energy strategy. They they don't have a solid strategy. They've been very successful in building a lot of renewable energy, wind power. I think they had one of the the, the biggest build-outs globally in, in the past few years. Um, they actually have domestic upstream gas resources, which, you know, um, a, a good contact of mine argues that's what they should be developing first. The, the cost of it is much cheaper. But there's this fixation on, not just from the Vietnamese, but from project developers. And interestingly, a lot of them are US-based, and, and they are, it would appear, you know, shoving the LNG to power concept down the throats of the Vietnamese um, with the idea that US LNG would find a home in Vietnam although in the, the way we see the world today perhaps there's, there's there's no shortage of buyers for US LNG perhaps it's not as important to to, to push US LNG towards Vietnam but basically yeah they didn't there's no long-term contracts and no deals have been signed yet so if any of these projects went ahead then you could argue that the, the assets could quite likely be stranded for a country like the Philippines, their domestic gas resources is, is running out very quickly. So they need to get import terminals up and running. They are actually being developed. They're, I think their first terminal might come online later this year. Um, but I don't think they're locked into any contracts either. I don't think any firm deal has been done. And in the case of South Asia, Pakistan, they've already got the LNG import infrastructure. But I think you know, they can't afford the LNG. And I think that LNG has been diverted to Europe. So it's, um, so there, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a hard one. Can, can I ask about the, the Vietnam question? You, you referenced your, your contact talking about the, the domestic supply. It, it does seem that there, from what you've reported anyway, there's been a good few discoveries um, and, and, and projects trying to get off the, the starting block um, in recent years. Why, why are we seeing so much um, barrier to getting these going is is it is it a question of finding the the market for it or what's what's stalling it i suppose is the question damon yeah it's a good question alistair um so i mean there's a lot of bureaucracy it's a it's a very difficult place to get projects going there's definitely no lack of market there's a there's a huge block b project which is um used to be owned by chevron but chevron walked because they couldn't agree a a decent gas sales price with with the government several years ago which now would look very nice that gas sales price i think i think it's like like you know five to eight dollars per mmbtu versus what lng what, what's that going at these days over thirty dollars per mmbtu on the spot maybe 40 i don't know but definitely very expensive um then we have exxon mobile they have the big blue whale field but that is kind of ensnared in geopolitics with china 
that you know the south china sea china says that's in its waters so there's a geopolitical geopolitical issue around that um however you could argue the vietnamese you know and people would probably attack me for saying this and but this is trying to be pragmatic perhaps they could co-develop and at these fields with the chinese that that is but that you know but mm. the u.s would hate that and, <laughs> yeah i think the vietnamese but, but these are quite cross about it yeah i mean they're very upset about it, but otherwise you know that that field is kind of geopolitically um i don't know exxon mobile have been trying to sell the stake in it but i don't think anyone really wants to touch it because of the geopolitics behind it and um and yes we had we've had lots of eni has been busy finding nice big gas deposits in the past year or two i think one of them was even a bigger than one trillion cubic feet of gas which is really nice i mean vietnam's government if you're listening you know if you get get these deposits sorted out <laughs> built get get the policy i mean it's it's a difficult country to do things but that, that, that's the ultimate answer but okay yeah. I'm, I'm sure they are listening uh, and i'm sure downing street's listening too uh so you know let's see how many politicians we can annoy in the next episode of energy voice out loud but for now we will stop annoying people and call it a day for this particular one thank you to ed and to damon for joining me i've been alistair thomas thank you for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.